This is Hal Hester, lead pastor of Vine Life, and this is our podcast, The Empowered Word. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective on what God is doing in your life. Please enjoy the message. All right. Good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? That's like this really half-hearted kind of like, you know, I hope you're doing better than you sound. Anyhow, good to see you this morning. Uh, welcome to Vine Life. My name is Hal Hester. Uh, if you noticed there on our little entry video there, uh, you know, uh, introduction to the series, uh, over the last few months, we've been looking at the Gospel of John. And uh, if you haven't been here with us, uh, you notice that uh, the, the words eternal life being significant in the name of the series, but also it is actually the theme uh, of the Gospel of John is this whole idea of eternal life. So much so that even as we look through the book of John, as we look through that gospel, we see that over and over again, the words life being having phrases attached to them like abundant and eternal, but also the very fact that the word that's used throughout the gospel of John, it doesn't explain it very well in English uh, because we just translate both all these words life, but uh, usually the word bios is the Greek word that is employed for referring to biological life, right? It's where we get our word biology from, uh, re referring to just our simple existence. We are biologically alive. And yet there's the words that are used over and over again are zoe and sozo. And so this is communicating not uh, just the idea of existence, but a quality of life, an expectation of a kind of life to be lived. And the expectation within the book of John is specifically that through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, as you and I come into relationship with Jesus, that we begin eternal life in the here and the now, that something has already broken through, that the, the situation has changed dramatically, that by Jesus giving his life in exchange for us, that you and I can enter into eternal life now. It means that our lives could be radically transformed and that we become a kind of people through whom which people taste the very essence of heaven, that through us, through our living demonstration of his kindness, of his mercy, of his grace, of all the ways in which he sets us free and gives us this abundant sense of life, that spilling out from our lives is the very quality of eternal life, and then the invitation then to our neighbors, our friends, our families, yes, even to our enemies, is that they would find that reconciliation through Jesus, that they would be invited to the table through our lives, and that having seen and tasted the goodness of the kingdom of heaven, that they would want what we have, that we would say along with the Apostle Paul, not ignore me and just look at Jesus, but no, follow me as I follow Christ. And that the greatest evidence of the transforming power and the presence of the Holy Spirit is our lives being empowered, our lives being changed, so that people can say, that's what the kingdom of heaven looks like in the present, working in the world around us even right now, so that the focus is not you and I getting into heaven, but getting heaven into you and me. With that said, we're going to take a look this week at John chapter 13. We're talking about the foot washing. 
It's actually part of that whole farewell discourse uh, we started uh, last week, uh, and we're looking as we're building on all of these things, working through the very last night, just before Jesus is to be betrayed by Judas. And so this whole focus, uh, all these things that are going to be talked about over the next five chapters, you know, are just so uh, powerful, focused on that. And then, of course, we get to chapter 18 and Judas' actual betrayal, the night that we all think of in terms of being the most significant moment. But we are on the cusp of that evening. We're going to be talking about that for the next five weeks. And so as we look at this, one of the things I want to point out to you here in John is that the foot washing in this text is not included, it's hinted at in one of the other Gospels, but not included in the other biographies of Jesus. So immediately, one of the things that you and I want to ask ourselves is, why does John include this? What is it about the nature of the writing of John? What is it he's trying to communicate to us that is different than the other biographers? And what does he want us to take home from this as we consider who Jesus is and what it means to be a kingdom person? We're in John chapter 13, beginning in verse 1 this morning. If you're using a phone or tablet, please do me a favor, set that to silent for the sake of those around you and for your sake as well. I'm going to read it from the English Standard Version, but please follow along whatever translation you have in your lap. That's my favorite translation this morning because you're reading it. Let's take a look. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart, Out of this world and to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garment and taking a towel, tied it around his waist Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, But if I do not wash you, You have no share with me. Simon Peter said, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he washed their feet, And put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. Well, this foot washing is both deeply symbolic and also just terribly pragmatic. Um, 
but most of all instructive. Now, you may have heard these things before, but historically, you know, foot washing uh, was the lowest job in a society. In fact, even in the strata of those who were servants, of those who were what we would call today a slave, uh, among those servants, uh, it, it was just the, the lowest form of job there was. In fact, in the strata of uh, those who served, uh, typically it was uh, because of societal norms, the youngest female slave. The male slaves wouldn't even tend to stoop to do it because they thought it beneath them. And so you can imagine just kind of the whole attitude that would surround something like that. Uh, you know, it's hard for us sometimes to grasp because we live in such an egalitarian society where uh, we think of people as being essentially equal. And even when that is uh, uh, called into question in our society, it creates great political and emotional turmoil in our society. We, we saw just a few years ago where some of those questions were asked again, is everybody equal? Is everybody uh, stand the same before the law? Do people, uh, are they treated the same uh, in society and all? And, and it was a very difficult time for us as a whole. We don't like to ever think of anyone being more important or less important. In fact, when those conversations come up, uh, we become very emotionally charged. Hard to talk about. Historically, not only was foot washing the lowest job in society, but when you think in terms of sandaled feet traveling along sandy roads uh, where the same beasts of burden and cattle of all kinds have traveled, pretty nasty. Or even if you were in a larger Romanized city where there were brick and cobblestone streets, what you don't understand is that those communities, those homes at street level were the most desirable because they usually had running water, something very unusual two millennia ago. And therefore, the bathrooms in those homes dumped into the street. And you walked through that mess. I don't think I have to go into graphic detail to tell you how nasty feet can get if you're walking the same road as animals or walking the same road as uh, the sewer. But uh, listen, even in our modern society, without those conditions, like feet are like kind of considered kind of the least presentable type of thing, right? I mean, even in Florida where we just, like in the land of flip-flops, right? We know that you just, you just don't stick your feet up near people. It's just, it's rude. It's, it's gross, you know? Uh, you, you know. If you're sitting at a table and you start picking your toenails or something, you know, I mean, like, right? I mean, it's just, yeah, they're gross, right? It's just feet are stinky, especially if they've been to the gym or something and... Now, you add to that the Passover practice of reclining at a table, kind of little soft couches, and they kind of leaned on each other, and they kicked their feet back. And, but still, you realize that you know, another person's nasty feet could definitely put a real damper on your dining experience. Right? I mean, you're just like, not good, not good. It's not hard for us to imagine without going into great detail, but... But when you spend a little 
time reading about ritual washings. One of the things that we've talked about throughout the Gospel of John was how ablutions of different kinds of washings were very uh, important to the community of faith, especially looking at, you know, uh, post-Babylon Israel, uh, where uh, for a long time the, the temple having been interrupted while they were away in Babylon, waiting for it to be rebuilt and things like that, that washings became a daily practice in some communities, uh, forms of baptism uh, among the communities all along the Transjordan that would have had uh, an expectation of some kind of washing, baptisms, uh, hand washing, all the time we're reading uh, about the Pharisees getting upset that people are eating their food without washed hands, uh, which I just think is a, you know, we know now is a, just a good healthy thing to do. But, but there's all this fastidious washing and washing and washing and washing before any kind of worship or any kind of religious festival. And that was also true in the Passover, might I even say especially true in Passover, because one of the things that you did in Passover, so, well, let me back up. Let me explain a little bit more here. In terms of the nature of these washings, one of the things that was even done was like when they were writing, when they were transcribing uh, text, recording them for posterity's sake, uh, one of the things that they would often do is they would wash before they would even write in the manuscripts. And whenever it came to writing the, the personal name of God, Yahweh, they would even go so far as to change into a different set of clothing, a linen ephod. They, after they would wash themselves head to toe, they would change clothes, they would go in, and they would just simply write the name of Yahweh over and over again in that text. And when they got done, they would take that clothing off and burn it as a sacrifice because they so revered the name of God and then they would wash again before they would go back to doing the job just permeated their society well Passover one of the things that was common practice to do was literally you took a bath head to toe you washed yourself really good because you wanted to be clean before you engaged in the highest and holiest moment of worship within their calendar Think in terms of like uh, what we even do around things like Christmas and Easter in uh, American Christianity where, uh, you know, uh, at Easter time, people like, you know, do their Easter best. I'll, I'll, not so much in a vineyard, but, you know, uh, but, you know as a whole, like that's a, a common practice, you know, you put on your Easter best. Or at Christmas time, people usually come in done up to the nines for the Christmas Eve service, uh, not because of the service so much, just they're just maybe dressed up because of their activities for the evening or whatever, but there's still this some sense of that left in our society, but in particular, with that meal, they saw it as part of their expression of worship to come bathed head to toe. And then, if you had to travel at all to go to your Passover dinner, if it wasn't at your house, if it was at your you know, auntie's house or whatever, you know, and you got there, they would then have water set aside because you had to make your way through the streets to get to their house, and your feet might have gotten dirty in the process. Most likely your feet got dirty. Your feet were probably nasty, okay? Let's just be honest. You got there, and you're all clean, and you're smelling pretty good. 
except for your feet. And so now it's time to just, you know, give your feet a good scrubbing. And so the common thing to do if auntie wasn't uh, wealthy is you came in the house and they had the stuff ready and you washed your own feet. Now, if auntie had a servant uh, and the servant, you know, would be then assigned at the time of arrival to uh, uh, wash your feet and make sure that you were prepared to come to the table. Uh, uh, you know, just all part of not only the, the ritual action of being clean, but also just the, the, the kindness of the person you were sitting next to in this meal. And uh, it's it just an act, a part of an act of hospitality, as well as a statement of fidelity to God. Now, as you can imagine, no one wants that job. Nobody wants to do the job. And like I said, normally it was like the female slave, and, and then if it didn't want them, then one of the other servants, and they didn't have a female slave or, or whatever. Uh, and then if not, if there were no servants, uh, oftentimes just one of the free women of the family would get the job. Because... In the strata of society, they were the bottom. I know that just doesn't set well on 21st century ears, but I, I just want you to kind of understand the hierarchy that's deeply ingrained in the society. So in this situation, Jesus is the host. But because of the kind of egalitarian nature of Jesus following, right? I mean, there's something that's so distinct that stands out about the way Jesus following is uh, women are being allowed to study with the men. First off, just all by itself was so outside of the norm uh, of women being part of his following, of traveling with him, of them studying alongside of the men. Uh, even the complaint, uh, you know, between Mary and Martha, you know, that she was studying instead of helping her and doing women things and was in there studying with the men. And, and we, we watched this whole thing of where she lamented over his feet and washed his feet with her hair and stuff. She's touching him just completely out of bounds. I mean, everything about what's happening here with Jesus. And then he's called these men from just regular society. They're fishermen. One of them's a tax collector. Like, I mean, just imagine you invite the IRS agent over for dinner, right? I mean, let alone them being a traitor, being loyal to Rome, loyal to your enemy. So in the midst of this ragtag bunch of folks that just don't represent regular rabbi circles, there's this real egalitarian spirit of them working together, being seated not by rank. Do you know, during the Passover, one of the normative things was that you sat in order of your social rank. Could be age, could be financial status, could be positions of power and authority in the community, uh, if you were a leader or something like that. Uh, and so they would arrange the table. Uh, Jesus refers to this sometimes when he talks about uh, that people wanting to get to the, 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 the number one spot at the table. And he says, you know, it's really embarrassing if you take the number one spot and then the host comes to you and says, excuse me, could you go sit way over there? I had this place reserved for somebody else more important than you. 
And then you would have the embarrassment of having to get up and walk to another table. You ever just had that even happen in polite society where there's not necessarily rankings per se. We don't have rankings in our society, but you ever been someplace where they go, yeah, could you scoot over so I could like have so-and-so sitting next to me uh, or, you know, uh, my, my, my grandmother's here or whatever, and you just had to like get up and move. And even in just in polite society, it can be a little bit of an awkward thing in just a moment to be asked to move like that. In this group that doesn't stand on ceremony, that doesn't believe in social rankings like nobility, royalty, things like that, where there are no acts of honor or life station among the disciples, along with this general culture of breaking with tradition. Right now, in this play fiddle on the roof and you know we're constantly singing the song tradition and then the point is is that they're breaking with tradition because Tevi is actually in a relationship with God and listening to God when you're in an environment where tradition is constantly being broken well no one washed their feet And they certainly didn't think it was their job to wash anyone else's feet. Because we're all equal. And it's true. But I think we can especially grab hold of this in a society like ours. One that doesn't stand on ceremony, one that doesn't believe in social rankings and things like that. But here's what I've noticed. Maybe you've noticed it too, that sometimes in an atmosphere of freedom and equal ranking, people sometimes actually can be so assertive in their equality, it's to the point of being disrespectful, inconsiderate, or inhospitable. Now, I was raised in the South, and my dad was in oil, and manners were like a big part of everything. I literally got sent to a thing called cotillion when I was in uh, high school where I had to learn how to dance and do manners and and pass the salt properly and stuff like that and and I can remember some meals even where my dad so got after me about the tip of my spoon when eating soup that I literally just gave up eating out of frustration because he was picking at me and uh Then came my brother-in-law, and he moves from Boston to Texas. Big cultural difference. And my dad, being a vice president in the oil company, got him a job. No problem. Come on down. We'll get you a job. He goes to the interview. It's a slam dunk. My dad is vice president of real estate in the, in the oil company. It's a slam dunk. And he blew it. You know how he blew it? Because in the South and in the oil business, one of the things you say is, yes, sir, no, sir. Yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. And instead, he decided to call the president of the oil company by his first name. 
And the guy even gave him a hint and tried to like, and then like sent some other people in trying to help him out so that he would start calling him, yes, sir, no, sir, Mr., etc. And he got offended that they expected him to say yes, sir, and no, sir. And so he lost the job. They told my dad what happened. My dad went and pulled him aside, and he goes, look, I'm gonna, we're going to give you another chance, another interview. You're going to go back in. You're going to say yes, sir. You're going to say no, sir. You're going to call him Mr., you know, and by his last name and all those kind of things. And he said, I am not doing that for anybody. I, nobody in that place is better than I am. And my dad looked at him and said, well, sir, I tell you what, in my opinion, that makes me a better man than you just because I call you sir. It's called respect. And so the end result was that my brother-in-law didn't get the job and found it very difficult to make his way in the South. I'm not uh, abdicating for that right now. I just want you to hear what I'm saying is, is that sometimes in the assertiveness of equality, we so assert ourselves that we actually become disrespectful of one another. And that's actually what's happening in this, in this situation. Nobody has washed their feet. Why didn't anybody stop and wash their own feet? I mean, you're going to be at the table with everyone else, right? I mean, the stench of the feet. I, I mean, in some ways, this almost defies any kind of reasonable behavior in a sense. And, and yet, everybody did it because nobody wanted to be perceived as being less than. And certainly nobody was there washing anybody else's feet. Funny enough, actually what's happening at this point is they're not only disrespecting themselves and one another, but since Jesus is their host, in a way, it's kind of like they're disrespecting him. At the same time, you and I have to recognize this, that it's Jesus who's fostered this kind of equality and, and respect for everyone, regardless of their social standing. And so they've kind of missed it in a way. In other words, in one sense, yes, he's encouraged them to, be, to treat everybody the same, regardless of their social status. It did not mean it, that it was supposed to be an act of being disrespectful and their desire for equality. It was supposed to be something altogether. And so Jesus, not rebuking them, but teaching them one last lesson, right? It's, the, it's close. Closing night. I mean, like, I mean, he's getting ready to go to the cross and he's still teaching them. This is one of the things that when I look at and I go, do you realize that in just a few short days, these guys are going to lead like this expansive growth of the church? These people are going to lead and, dis and, and disseminating the kingdom all throughout the known world in their time. I mean, uh, all these amazing things that God is going to do through them. And right now, they're so clueless that they're not even washing their feet at the table. And you might think, say to yourself, well, that doesn't sound like that big of a deal, but if you know all the social norms, you've got to think to yourself, like, this is just kind of, well, it's to the point of silly. So here, among a few other lessons that we will get over the ne next couple of weeks, 
their last night with him, he begins to wash their feet. Please note that Jesus gets pretty far around the circle. He doesn't start with Peter. It's not like the first one off and then and, and everybody goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. He literally is going around the table washing everybody's feet and nobody said anything. Knowing what I just told you about the social norms, like, if you're kind of the fly in the room, so to speak, as we're reading this text, it does look pretty disrespectful at this moment. They're just letting him. No one said anything. And so finally, Peter, you know, Peter's always the one, you know, that's got to speak up and say things. He, you know, uh, just kind of clearly the natural leader in the bunch and... Uh, he gets around to Peter, no one's objected, and finally Peter just goes, wait a minute, what, what are you doing? And, and, as, and, and as Peter objects, it kind of gets comical, because as he's going through this, he goes, okay, well, don't, don't, you know, don't wash my feet, you know, I, I can't let you do that, because on the one hand, like, if his master is washing feet, who does that imply should be washing feet? I mean, if Jesus is your master, right, if he's your example, what doing life is like, eternal life, abundant life, and he's serving others and giving his life as a ransom, what should your life look like if you're engaging in eternal life. If you're experiencing the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit at work in you, if, if your life is beginning to overflow with a sense of hope and joy for others, something that transcends stratas of society, something that transcends race and color, ethnicity, and, all, and it begins to be transformative of entire world, of, of a kind of power of God at work in the world so that it would literally turn the world upside down because it would be in such contrast to the system and the world around you. What would it look like if Christians like believed in and followed that kind of Jesus? A foot-washing Jesus, a humble Jesus, a merciful. You know, he could have rebuked them at that moment. What's wrong with you? Instead, he just does this kindness to them and begins to model for them what it looks like. Peter's like, no, 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 you know, this is, because he doesn't want it. He doesn't want the job. And so he starts saying all this crazy stuff. Well, you know, then, okay, wash my head, my hands, you know, uh, but as I told you, it's Passover. They've already had a bath. And so Jesus just kind of builds on that, you know. Because look, washing your feet was just tidying up. Jesus retort that someone who has had a bath has already been made clean. He's like both a literal truth and a metaphor in this moment. He, he's like trying to drive home this point. He's trying to get Peter and everyone else to understand what he was doing and why he was doing it. 
that it wasn't about status. It was about an attitude of serving. It wasn't about religious ceremony. It wasn't about an attitude of love, worship. See, Peter's objection is really not about the washing of feet. Like everybody else in the room, he thinks himself above the situation. And if his master's doing it, he's worried that that means he would have to do it too. Hello? I, I told one of our Bible college students recently, we were, we were talking about what life and ministry looks like, expectations meet on, on a weekly basis, and we're, we're just talking about that whole thing. How do you, how do you make your way in ministry? Um, I, um, I had the, the uh, realization this summer that I have been doing this for 35 years now. I know I don't look like it. You, know, you can... I heard that, I heard that, but, um, but I said, you know, 35 years in professional ministry, getting my doctorate, all that kind of stuff, one of the things I've learned about pastoral ministry is that it's not about being a great preacher or being a scholar. It's just simply about loving people enough to show up even when no one else does. And showing up often has more to do with arriving early, scrubbing toilets, staying late, locking up after everyone else has raced off to lunch to beat the Baptists. You know, on occasion I get questions about Hebrew and Greek, but not really. Did you know the average tenure in ministry for a Bible college or seminary grad is right around seven years? Three churches, seven years. And then they quit, most of them never to darken a church door ever again. This past month, there's been a story floating around the internet of a pastor who, after 10 years of ministry, wrote a rather scathing article about why he left his job and received a lot of attention a lot of piling on. His primary complaint was that he was trained to be a Bible scholar, not a building maintenance chief, not a janitor, not a corporate CEO, not a lawyer, not an HR manager, not a tax consultant, not a medical doctor, not a hospice attendant, not a psychologist, not a politician or social scientist. And yet he said, I'm expected to be all these things rolled into one while getting paid less than any one of those jobs normally pays. On top of that, I've got three years of seminary to pay for. I told the student, the real job is showing up and then loving those that Jesus loves. And the reason you do those things is not because it's part of your job description, it's in hopes that they catch by example and through teaching and just do the same thing. And the reason I've lasted for 35 years is just this daily decision. Wash feet. Especially when the assignment's filthy. Please hear me. 
I'm not saying that to, uh, like, it's, I'm, I'm not, it's this not some humble brag thing trying to appear humble to you or to get your admiration. Because I want you to catch this point. It's not my job as pastor. Service is a Christian thing. Being a disciple of Jesus. See, Jesus wasn't calling pastors to wash feet. He was calling disciples to wash feet. Can you imagine if the whole community of Christ was known by that kind of attitude? That we were all the kind of people who stayed late, got up early, prayed for the sick, were available if our lives were poured out for the sake of others. See, that really is the Christian message. Somewhere along the line, we've like reduced it to a paid role. Maybe it's why that in one of the most free lands where Christianity has standing socially, economically, politically, that it has its least influence. And that in the far corners of the world where it's outlawed, that that's where the gospel is thriving. That's where the explosion of Christianity is happening because we haven't reduced it to an add-on. We haven't made it Sunday morning. They can't afford well-paid pastors who've been to seminary. And so somewhere along the way, they just figured out that it was everybody's job, that every disciple of Jesus was called to wash feet, not in a ceremony. I'm not anti-ceremony. Okay, sometimes I am, but I, you know, I, I, my point is not to be anti-ceremony, you know, the, the, the symbolism of all of that. See, the professional religious leader that wrote that article quit his job after 10 years because there was never enough pay and never enough accolades. And my plea to you is that washing feet was not any of those things. You see, in just a few verses, right here in the same chapter, Jesus is going to tell them that he is glorified when his disciples love one another. And then he says, and that's how the world will know that you really are my disciples. They will know the truth of, of all of these things when you love one another like that. So loving the body of Christ like Jesus loves the body of Christ, being the kind of people who wash feet is part of this eternal life overflowing, not because I have to, but because I get to, because I get to love the very things and the very people that Jesus loves that that transformative power of eternal life is working through me so that the greatest goal in my life is not to be seen as exalted or above or to have a great place at the table, but it actually might be in sitting at the door and washing feet. You see what that professional pastor missed was that leaving the ministry shouldn't actually alleviate him from 
any of those things. If leaving pastoral ministry alleviated him from loving the body of Christ and serving the body of Christ, then he clearly wasn't making disciples or following Jesus. Unless, of course, as I said, on average, after seven years, most people never darken the church door again. I don't know that it's that they give up on being following Jesus as much as they give up on this thing that they've created, propagated. You know, when I was working outside of professional ministry to pay the bills for a while, one of the reasons that I couldn't stay away was I just thought to myself, I might be getting paid better in this job, but uh, nothing had actually substantially changed about my life except I just felt like I maybe had a little less time to do it in. See, you and I, that's what we're called to do. We're called to love one another, not just in the convenient ways, but specifically when it comes to just like cleaning up the road grind. You see people that have been walking with Jesus and they're clean, but sometimes they step in it. Have you ever stepped in it? Did you ever need anyone to wash your feet? Metaphorically? Maybe literally? So church, it's never been enough for us to memorize the verse, although I think we should. And it's not enough for you and I just to know the story of Jesus washing their feet or even to do it in some kind of foot washing ceremony. I I think if we do that, but it doesn't impact our lives, that we're really missing the point. We're doing religious stuff instead of embracing the real sense of eternal life. See, I'm not saying it's wrong. I just think that an attitude of service in all of life, uh, what I'm supposed to imitate rather than uh, some ceremony uh, uh, that's in a sterile environment is this whole thing of just like my life being poured out in the service of those around me. That Jesus is not modeling ceremonies but a lifestyle, the way that is eternal life. The way that exceeds biological life. A kind of life that humbles itself to serve. A kind of life that doesn't keep track of life station as a means of evaluating the other people around me. A kind of life that picks people up. The kind of life that isn't waiting to be served but loves one another, serves one another. What if we all serve one another with that kind of attitude? What what if we were always there to pick up each other's pieces? What if we didn't wait? to the pieces fell, what if we just simply loved one another day by day in such a way that the whole world would say, that, that looks remarkably attractive. I think that might look like, I don't know, Jesus? And it should go without saying, but that kind of life is the kind of life that doesn't point out when you have excrement on your shoes and tell you to clean yourself up or call you dirty. 
It's the kind of life that when someone steps in it, comes and washes your feet. Do you need a life where people come and wash your feet? You know how you get that kind of life? You wash feet. You wash feet. When people's lives smell of the stuff they've stepped in, when they have uh, found themselves far away from home, clean, unclean, walking with Jesus a long time, walking with Jesus a little time, that the, the thought in our heart, the intention of our actions and our attitude is not to point out the excrement on their feet, but to wash their feet, to love them, and to point the way. Let's stand together, shall we? Now the prayer team people come up in just a moment, but to all the saved, did you soil your shoes this week? <laughs> did you step in it? I want to remind you that does not now mean that you were lost, that you were dirty, worthless, or something like that. It just means you need your feet washed. And so maybe... Um, Maybe you come get some prayer and let somebody wash your feet. Maybe you had a good week, but you've, maybe you've embraced that consumer model of Christianity that's all about your blessing, your staying out of hell, your self-absorbed criteria of Christianity. And uh, what you've been hearing about is a life of discipleship a loving what and whom Jesus loves, and you, maybe you want to embrace that kind of eternal life in the here and now, in the present. You want your life to overflow with that kind of mercy, of kindness. You want to be in an atmosphere where people literally and figuratively wash feet. Maybe you're ready to wash a few feet. I'm going to invite you to come get some prayer. This morning before service, I had someone share, a, a, Mary Frances shared a, a word that she had gotten, and I want to share it with you because I just feel like it is pertinent to what we've been talking about. She said, You are my children, and I love you. I long to show you the depth of my love and give you as a double portion of my divine grace. Pour out a new anointing of gifts and blessings so that others may yet to know me, may partake in the knowledge of me and receive the fullness of joy that I have for them. My divine heart holds no bounds when it comes to giving you everything you need, providing for you with every good thing from above, for I am Jehovah Jireh, the divine provider, and there is no other that can provide for you like me. I'm the great I am. He's always watched over you ever since you were formed in your mother's womb, and I already knew you. I've always been with you and know every part of you. I'm calling you to look at me, to trust all that I'm doing in your life. 
put aside suspicion and distrust. A guarding of your heart that is not of my spirit, but which is deeply rooted in your fear. For these things have no room in my divine plans and purposes for you. The work that I have for you will require a deep surrender of your will. It's the only in letting go of the past. See, it's only as you surrender your heart fully to me that I will multiply divine harvest of souls that will produce kingdom fruit for my glory. Did I not call the twelve? Did not my love for them forgive and cover a multitude of sin? They were my disciples whom I loved. I have not called the perfect. That is impossible for man. I brought together those who love me and are called by my name, for I have chosen you. You have not chosen me. I call on those whom I choose for my divine pleasure to assist in this labor and harvest at the appointed time. Your steps are ordered by me. Just as I call my apostles, so I will also call those choosing to walk this divine road with me and you. And just as I called each of you, each of my apostles, I will call you into a spirit of unity with one heart and mind with those who will have their eyes on me. It will be ordained by my spirit in purity and truth, not of the flesh. For I will divide and separate that which is of flesh and that which is of my spirit, so that my purpose and plans will stand. I will cause that which is of flesh to fail, to fall away, as I pour forth this fresh anointing of my spirit that will lead and guide you a new dimension and purpose of my choosing. You need only look to me when your heart becomes troubled. Keep your eyes focused on me. Press in. When your soul urges you to retreat, when the wounds you've endured from others overtake you and cause you to withdraw or push back, quiet yourself before me, for my grace is sufficient. Did I not endure rejection? Did I not experience the pain of separation from my Father? Did I not experience ultimate rejection through my death on the cross? Was I not misunderstood? Did not Peter deny me three times? Behold, I am the God who heals all your wounds, forgives, repairs, restores your every mistake, your every sin, so that I might be glorified in the work of my Father through the Holy Spirit will shine bright for my glory from generation to generation. That's you this morning. If that's you found yourself in that place of you say, you know, I, I believe all these things, but I just find it really hard to surrender. I'm I'm worried about my station. I'm worried about my my life, my progress. I'm worried about my situation. You don't understand, and all those things. And yet the reality is, is you find deep within you a desire to surrender to what God is doing in your life. Maybe if deep within inside you and you're deep within your knower, there's a sense in which you believe that you've been called to wash feet. But you're worried about what it means, how it plays out in your life. I want to invite you to trust Him. And in this moment, just surrender. I, I can promise you, I don't know what it's going to look like in your life. I know when I surrendered, I never dreamed that it looked like what it has been. 
I can also tell you that there's been nothing more precious, more powerful, more life-giving than falling into his arms in complete trust and walking with him. And in the moments when I retreat, the way back is the same way in. You just have to trust him. Father God, we thank you for this morning and for our time together. We thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus, in whom we have put all of our hope, our expectation, not only in the life of the world to come, but even in this moment, we've come with an expectation that eternal life can be ours here in the now, that your power and your presence at work in us and through us, that there is transformation, that there is the ability to walk out in this moment for our life to be filled with your life and to overflow with joy, with mercy, with forgiveness, with hope. And so, Lord, make us vessels of your mercy and kindness. Make us vessels of your justice and righteousness. Make us the hands and feet of the God of the towel. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I have the prayer team members. Go ahead and come on up. And if you need any prayer, let me encourage you to come on up and get some prayer. And Otherwise, I hope to see you next week. God bless. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you did, there's two things you could do for me. First, subscribe to our channel. That way, the most recent podcast will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And secondly, if this ministry has impacted you, would you help us to continue to reach others? by clicking on the link in the description to give now. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to The Empowered Word.